Welcome, welcome to a brand new social convos. I'm here with Diego. My name is Jean-Luc and Diego, it feels like it's been longer than a week. Yeah, it's for some reason for me, it feels a little bit longer than a week. But but before we introduce our guest, because we have a very, very interesting episode happening today. Tomorrow is 5-5. Five five. Mm-hmm. Today and, is May birth. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> May the birth. May the fourth be with you. So uh, everybody who is a big Star Wars fan, congrats. But tomorrow is 5-5. And I'm actually a big Gary Vaynerchuk fan. But I don't have one Ethereum stashed up in my MetaMask or somewhere else. So I am kind of kind of curious what's, what's going to happen tomorrow. I am as well. You might have seen the post I shared today on Facebook on Gary V's live with he's launching something tomorrow. So I joined his Discord channel, see how it's going. I've been following the post for a while. And yeah, I, I'm just, you know, casually following it. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen yet. Not sure how I'm going to respond yet, but. Yeah, okay, so it's, a, it's not a clear cut. You you're you're there just in case it's like I want this, but it's not necessarily that you're gonna end up with a Gary Gary. V no, no, it, it, it's just okay. uh, a feeling thing, and see how okay. it develops. Okay, I looked at what you have to have stashed up. I'm like, I'm out. I've put every every bit of Ethereum I have is either on hold or. I've put it for NBA Top Shot, and I'm actually becoming a very big NBA Top Shot collector. And in two days, so not tomorrow, but actually on Thursday, I'm going to get my first ever minted, never to be sold in packs NBA Top Shot moment. So that's I'm, I'm a little bit excited about that as well. But maybe next week, we'll get a little bit more into it because Gregory is asking, can you explain uh, a little bit more it's basically nfts yeah NFT we, we don't know much yet so we're just following along as you are it's kind of lost so we're trying to figure it out as we go but yeah uh, let's not keep uh, everybody waiting and get waiting. into let's this episode yes so yeah it. welcome back everybody to social confos episode 17 and tonight we might go a bit philosophical a bit big picture view a big technological venture capitalist with none other than also someone from Surinamese roots. You all know the story, previous guests we had on that classic story, grown, raised in Suriname, born, raised in Suriname, traveled abroad to do your study, usually in the Netherlands, work for a big corporation or whatnot, and then decide to move to a small island and start your own thing. And this is the second person we will have from the island of Curaçao. First person was Giano van Kanten. If you missed the conversation with him on marketing in particular, check that out. But this time we're going a bit deeper. And I first met Neil, our guest from for tonight. I think it was two years ago. Yeah, right before I left. And it was actually through a I guess, business partner, professional contact of ours. And we decided to meet up at Torarica. And I just, uh, you know, drove in, walked by, walked back to the pier. And you see this guy casually chilling in his shorts, uh, drinking from his coconut, like the real Curaçao vibe. And <laughs> he said, oh, are you Anil? And then he, we, we just sit down and started talking because we were still waiting on Sabiti and we, we, we just hit it off. 
And the second I encountered, chance encounter I had with them was, you meet people at conferences, I meet people at parties. Was at a birthday party from a friend of mine. So, and that's when we hit it off again. And he was like, oh, do you know Anil? Yeah, I've met him before. And so we got uh, reunited there again. And this brings us to our, I guess, third encounter with you, Social Convo. So without further ado, we would like to bring up Anil Saduram, but you'll see him as Anil van Maratrata on screen. So Anil, welcome to Social Convos. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Welcome, welcome. Thank you guys. What an introduction. Yes, and, <laughs> what a and good we memory. have a lot of people. Jesus. <laughs> wow. And Anil, we have some people joining in saying, bring on the philosophy. Also, Stephanie saying, okay. we are ready for it. So cool. I guess I guess people are excited. But I don't know if it's a philosophical topic as well. But Anil, people want to know, or at least I want to know, the story behind Anil Famaretret. Because the first time I saw it was like, that's a pretty cool name. And then I realized, wait a minute, that's, that's too to actually accentuate some some history where you're from. So can you tell us a little bit about how this came about? Sure. Yeah, so my name is Anil. I call myself also Anil van Maretreta. And there is a, yes, of course, there's a reason why I do that. Back in the days when you could uh, get internet, an internet email address, that is how it started. In my case, it was in 1996 on top of my head. I thought, okay, I was in the Netherlands, I was studying, and I was thinking, okay, you have to take an address. What is an address? An address is a street name and a number, right? At least this is how we know it. But then I thought, it's still internet, it's still Greenfield. Why should I take a street? I'll take the whole neighborhood. Basically, it started like that. And <laughs> so I, you know, I had my email registered like Maratreta at now I have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this is how it started actually. So Anil van Maratreta. And so it, it kind of shows straight away what's in the name, right? But it also shows where it's not just my name, but also where I'm from. And for people from Suriname, I'm, I'm sure they would they would get it straight away, you know. In other, when I'm abroad, people are a little bit confused. Yes, but it's okay. We are living <laughs> online also partially, and you could see this as my my digital name, my alias or avatar name, whatever you want to call it. So that's that's the that's story. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I try to claim the whole country. That's why I put SR after after everything. But uh, but how long have you? How long did you actually live in Maratrata? I was born and raised in Suriname. So when I was, but I was not born. I was born in an hospital, Saint Vincentius. And then when I was five, we moved to the house where you know I grew up basically in Maratrata, Bisetstraat. So that's like yeah, 13, 14 years I've lived there. Because when I was 18, I moved to the Netherlands, to Delft, to uh, to study. So you know that was the time that I lived there. But you know. I've left, but I never left. It's, it's a little bit weird, but we'll dive maybe later into it. Yeah, so you spent, like, after you left, after 18, the majority of your time, or quite a long time in the Netherlands, that you studied at Twente, Delft, uh, I have a lot of friends there, so I, I've seen the campuses, really great stuff. And then you ended up, I think, working for Oracle to uh, another island, a big corporation. So before we get to how you got that title and trademark chief philosophy officer, what was the process going through those big corporations and eventually ending in the position you are right now, I guess? 
Yeah. Okay. To answer that great question, actually, to answer that question, we have to go back to Cerner when I was uh, studying at the, you know, at the middle school, the, the the secondary, how do you call it, high school. So we had to make a choice. What are you going to do? And in Suriname, you don't have a lot of cho- now. You have more choices, but back then you didn't have that much choice. And so somehow I, you know, my father was working at Ernst Young, so he want he told me you can become an accountant, and I was like, I'm not going to do that. You know, you don't want to do what you're. And in my case, I didn't want to do the same. So I, want to, I, I, dis- I wanted to become many things, but ultimately I decided I want to become an engineer, an engineer. So that's the Surinamese thing also, right? You, you guys had a, I, I watched one of your previous podcasts and then the, the choice that you had in the past was you had to study medical or law and engineering. Those three things actually were like the, the main things you could do. And for me, it was like, okay, so... I'm in Suriname now, what am I going to study and why am I going to study what I'm going to study? I, I, I thought if I'm going to study after graduation, I want to find a job. So going to the corporate world, actually. So that was the reason why you go to study also. It's not just for the intellectual, you know, environment and learning, but also we had a goal, right? You come from Suriname, you go to, you go abroad. That was the logic behind behind my thinking obviously many of the logic later on you know i learned it doesn't work like that but i don't, I don't know if i'm answering your question uh, properly but actually in Suriname, i already have made my mind up that you know i will i will study and then i will go for a great job somewhere in the corporate world yeah so and, you realize that that logic then makes sense and how would you apply that logic or how would you bend that logic and end up in working for like this international corporation like Oracle <laughs> yes. in Dublin? Yeah. Well, Dublin is actually, yeah, all uh, place, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually an interesting story because, you know, how many Surinamese people are there in Ireland, right? So actually, Oracle was not my first corporate job. So when I, when I graduated, one year before graduation, actually, you start to think where you're going to work. And I... I was studying physics and I was also studying philosophy. And with philosophy, you had the specialization in communication, communication about science and technology. So I thought I'm going to do that because, you know, I didn't want to stay in the university. I was, you know, I was not, I was done with it also, by the way, after a few years, you're done with that environment. But so I applied for a job at Anderson Consulting, which is Accenture now. And so this was very, very interesting because they were like the first paperless office. They were promoting themselves like that. So one, so I already graduated with physics. I still had to write my thesis for uh, philosophy. So I applied for that job one year before graduation and I got that job. So that was very interesting also, but also very bad also, because once you have a job, you're not going to look further, right? But this is only when I look back, I can say this. But at that time, I was so excited. I'm going to work for one of the top companies. I just have to graduate. And then I started working for them. But I remember still clearly, it was in Amsterdam at the, next to the Hilton in the Apollo land. They had their office there. And I remember going there fresh with my suit and everything by train to the first day to the office, paperless office. So I got my car keys. I was one of the first with the car in those days, a company car. I got a Panasonic a mobile phone. And I got, I think it was uh, an IBM laptop, super cool. And I had those three things in my hand. And suddenly a thought came in my hand, a depressing thought. Like, Jesus, do I have to do this for 30 years? So, so, so I don't know why that thought came, but, you know, it came in my head. And I, 
apparently it was a sign for me because I didn't stay that long in that company. I mean, I did the whole foundation training. I went to Chicago, everything. They did a lot of, you know, back in the days, they would invest a lot in, 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 in people. I guess still now they do it, but it's, it's different than back in the days. So, so I was working for them, but then I quit my job. And then I went to a trip in the Caribbean. So I bought a ticket. Actually, I went to Barbados because an uncle of mine was always talking about Barbados as this bounty island. So I told him, you want to come with me? He said, no, I have obligations and this and that. So I said, okay, I'm not going to wait for you. I went to Barbados, but on my, uh, on my list, I had Trinidad, Port of Spain. And the reason for that was that, that I wanted, you know, we didn't have internet really back then. But I already learned that Trinidad was the richest country back then in the Caribbean. And Suriname was not doing so well. So I was thinking, you know what? Instead of going to Suriname, I'm going to check it out in Port of Spain. So I, I bought a ticket. So I had one week of holiday in Barbados. And then I went to Trinidad. And then I started to network. I printed my CVs. I went to companies like KPMG, to PricewaterhouseCoopers, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I didn't have working experience in that I could apply straight away. I mean, these, 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 these islands, as I learned later also, they don't have the resources or the, the bandwidth to hire new graduates, so to speak, and then, you know, give them the full training. They expect you once you come on board that you already know to do the job, right? So they don't have that investment proposition. So I didn't make it back then. So I went back. To, uh, to the Netherlands. And then in my uh, apartment, there was like, uh, I still had, a, you know, back in the days we had uh, voicemail, uh, but that was a box, was an external box that you could attach to your, to your phone line. So when I came back from my holidays, for my trip, it's like a two month trip. I also visited Suriname by the way, because I called my mom from Trinidad to say hello. And she said, you cannot be in Trinidad and not come home. So <laughs> long story short, I went to Suriname and via Guyana went back and now I was in my apartment. So I saw this, this, this like a small box and the red light was flashing. So there was like a message. So I played the message. Thank God I had that thing. You know, if I didn't record it, I wouldn't know. But there was this hiring manager from Oracle. I had conversations with him before, but they were taking the time to make a decision. So he left a message to tell me if I still wanted a job in Dublin. So I called him and that's how I ended up in Dublin, actually, to make a long story short. And it's uh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, actually, it was, uh, it was uh, I mean, I, I remember even going into negotiations with these guys because now that they wanted me, I was, okay, I wanted you guys, I wanted to work for you guys. You didn't call me back. I, I did my trip, you know, and now I'm back and you want me to go to Dublin of all places. So I was, I was like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say yes or no. I want to go to Dublin first. I'll pay 50% of the ticket. And, but if you guys pay the other 50%, I'll come to Dublin and I'll check it out. And then I'll come back and then I'll make up my mind. Quick, quickly and, on that, you, you talked about negotiation. How is it as, I guess, semi-fresh graduate, how intimidating was it? Or how did you experience that negotiating with someone from like that corporate world and, you know, just saying it up front, like, I want this, this, this. And how did they receive that? What was your experience with that? Yeah, it's a good one. Actually, you don't do that just like that. Right. But it was the, the climate in those days was you could do that. Right. And I felt I could do that also because actually I had another job waiting for me at a headhunter's uh, office. So I canceled that one to go to Oracle, you know. So I was in a position that I could negotiate, so to speak. You're not always going to negotiate. But when you're in a position to negotiate, you're going to go for the better deal. Right. 
this is what, this was my thinking. And I was going in the corporate world. Everybody in the corporate world is thinking like that. If you don't think like that, you don't survive. They won't even hire you. Actually, the guy liked it that I was negotiating. So, you know, <laughs> it is. No, but this uh, is really, I mean, there, there, there's so many things that you just, I, I don't want to know if I want to start with the IBM computer or the, or the paperless company, but also like we we're talking about the 90s here. This is 90s, yes. 90s. Yeah. So, so, uh, so just, also, just before the millennium, this, that December 1999, yeah. I went to Dublin. What, what the biggest question is like, just just to put it into perspective, because you mentioned a, a, voice, a voice mailbox, that's also something that we don't, I mean, if, if yeah, somebody... Your generation doesn't know what that is, right? So. Well, we know what it is. We know what it is. Luckily, we know what it is, but it's not like we ever used it as adults. We know what it looked like when we were kids. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm really wondering, like, also the the, the idea and the, that your mom said, like, listen, you're in Trinidad, that you should come to Suriname. That's also something that, but but just just to understand, like, how re- revolutionary was the, the paperless company at the time? Because I think at the time, it's, I mean, we still use paper in Suriname. Yes, like, there was no for, such for thing. For digital transactions, yes. we actually, for digi- digital transactions, still get approved on paper. So so it's, so it's just for people to understand, yeah. like, what was the internet like in the 90s compared to the, all those social networks that we have yeah. here now? Yeah, well, in the 90s, the, the internet was mainly for, for the universities, right? Before that, before the internet went mainstream, it was just for the military. It was called the ARPANET. And then it came to the university. So when I was studying, we already had bits of pieces of the internet, but it was not really like it is right now. It was just a collection of a lot of computers, but select computers. So, but when I started to work, you already would have like browsers. You had AltaVista, Yahoo.com, those kind of companies were coming up. This was pre-Google, before Google, BG, I should say. So Anderson was a very, you know, innovative company. Actually, they, they were one of the first that started to use technology, the computer, into the enterprise. So the idea of the paperless office was also a little bit of a hype, a, a marketing term, because there is no such thing as a paperless office. Let me tell you that, you know. But the idea was that we would use more, we didn't use the word digital, or uh, we used the word electronic communication. So like electronic music, right? So this is, so let's say you would join a company like that. I have to go a little bit back in time. But for instance, you, you were not allowed to go to the office because it was like a global office with, and, and the Dutch office that was in Amsterdam where, where I was based. We had like a thousand employees at those, in those days. But there were like only 200 working spots in the building. So the idea is that you do not come to the office. The idea is that you go to the client, right? And do all the communication electronically. If you need to check something, let's say you are doing a project uh, for an energy company, electricity company, for instance, uh, and you have a new challenge there, that what you would do, you would go in the database of the company. We had a knowledge management network. It was in Lotus Notes. I remember that still. It was really old school. And Lotus Notes, wow. Yes, yeah. IBM stuff. Yeah, <laughs> super, super, super unpractical to use, but okay, it was what we had. Um, but it was, it, was, it was extensive in the sense that you would find all the cases internationally for all the energy companies. So if you would come on board and you had to do a project, you didn't, you didn't have to start completely from scratch. So you would have the repository, the knowledge repository, what we have now, like the internet, right? Where you could go and find your material to build your case on. So we would be working like that. And 
like I said, you were not allowed to go to the office. So you had to make an appointment first. You had to schedule a, a desk. You couldn't leave pictures on your desk neither, right? So it was like uh, very innovative for those days. It and was very flex working. Like it's it's now flex work. Flex spaces yes, are very yeah. popular. It was, yeah. we oh, were like it was just ahead of its time, actually. Yes. So for when people say we have to work now from home or uh, location independent, I'm like, yes, sure. You should do that. You should have done that 20 years ago also. It was, it was, you know, I mean, a lot of companies have adopted their, 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 their way of working. And, and, but, but now we are even, you know, now with the COVID pandemic, you know, people are used to work, not go to the, to the office necessarily to do their job. Right. Yeah, now it's, 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 now it sounds it's, like you are describing what people are like finally migrating to now in the, in, in a sense of, um, not going to the office. Yeah, and I mean, kind of now you got to make appointments to go to the office, most yes, of the places. Yes. Yeah, we were uh, ahead of the curve, but it's like with everything, right? If you, you guys are marketeers also, or at least Jean-Luc, what I've understood. So you have the 5% early, you know, the innovators, the early adopters, and now the rest is following. You could see it like that. I've always been in digital and digital transformation, also at Arco and later on. And, you know, we could see that we were, we were like evangelists, right? We would go to the company, the enterprise, our clients. And we would tell them, you know, that this would be a beneficial route for them to go, to go more digital, etc. Let's uh, briefly talk about the, the experience in Oracle, because you, you've had this, you know, the, the, the magic street, IBM yeah. laptop, the equipment, basically oh, yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the dream. Yes. And you got this dream corporate job. Yes. And then that depressing thought hit you. Yes. And this is in like before you went to Oracle, right? Yes. Was there something in, at Oracle that like, you know, really push through like uh, the drop that let the bucket fall that you decided okay enough of this corporate world and you know what was well, the at, at oracle i was just starting yeah. at oracle i was just starting actually and i was getting the you know it, there is nothing wrong with the corporate world if you fit in it there is a problem when you don't fit in it then it becomes a problem and but i think the corporate world is also like if you've never been in it it sounds like a scary thing but it's it's not that scary you know, it's, it's like a, just a, it's a big brand with international offices, but there's people like you and me also working there, right? So, of course, there is this bureaucracy because it's a bigger, it's a corporation. A corporation is uh, most of the time uh, huge, but I would say the, the issues that you get in a corporate world is, are the same issues you get if you are in a, in a large government organization, I would say. But maybe you want to go somewhere with that's scary. I don't know. You know, but that's scary. If if you're gonna compare it to a big, big like uh, government organization, because here's here's the thing that always separated the government side from the corporate side, or actually the private sector, was that the government kind of it, it's it's it moves in in. I wouldn't call it seasons, but in periods of periods of of command. So if if you have a new governor, if you have a new president, kind of the 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 vision and everything wants to another. It's really hard when when we talk about urban regime theory. It's often that we try to find a way that and when when government changes, the the partnership doesn't change. For instance, whereas with the private sector, it's it's more continuous. Then what what I find interesting in you're saying like it's it's similar. I'm worried, and and the reason I'm worried and is is because big corporations they grow bigger, grow bigger, grow bigger, grow bigger, or they completely fall off, and especially now. So 
my my biggest worry is like telecommunication. Let's let's keep it to something that's that's a little bit on on similar topic. A tele telecommunication company, when you have dozens of people that learned how to lay down wire for uh, home phones, and all of a sudden everything moves to mobile, and all those people have to get laid off because you can't train them anymore from laying the the landlines to going to mobile. Then all of a sudden you just you just lay off people. Right now in, in Suriname, we have the issue that one of our state companies, they are offering them to be laid off. And of course you get a layoff package, but still there, there's still a move towards laying off a lot of people because the company, the corporate company, didn't go along with the changes of time. And of course, something like a pandemic really hits because if the pandemic doesn't come. It, it, it can go slowly for maybe 10 years until there's really a problem. But now all of a sudden the pandemic comes and you lose like 60%, 80% of your income. And all of a sudden you have to cut straight away. So how how have you noticed, like, because companies like Oracle are still, still around, have you noticed a difference in approach from companies like big corporate companies that immediately shifted or shifted when they realized surroundings that just went on with the, with the old style of management until they were just completely broken up and they went bankrupt. So you, the, the last drop was, the last piece was, uh, was gone. Well, what, what was the last sentence that you said? Can you repeat that? So, so the difference between companies like corporate companies that they adjust during time and companies that just keep doing the old management style until everything breaks off and they just go bankrupt. Okay. So it's a complicated question. I realize that. To answer, so let me let me let me say this: there is corporates and corporates, right? Not all corporations are the same. In my case, I have worked for the high tech corporations, and what you see with the high tech corporations is they are growing more and more, right? This is their world, and with the COVID, this was also you know has they have benefited from the COVID also. So I guess there is there's two types of corporates: the ones that are like modern, innovative, high tech. And there is this classical bureaucracy corporation that are maybe doing other services, but nothing to do with technology. So they use technology for their own job also, but they are not in the business of technology. Those are the companies in general that are the ones that are at risk. So they are the ones because innovation technology is related to innovation. So it's more in our DNA, I would say our, because I've, I've come from that industry. It's more in our DNA to keep changing. You know, for me, if I hear the issue that, you know, you're being laid off because we're going from copper to fiber or to wireless, for me, that's normal. You should, we know this, this happens all the time. And a company is there to make profit, right? While the government should also somehow be profitable, but they have a different, they don't have a business model. So the corporate world has a business model and they have to be profitable, otherwise they will die. So this, 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 this change that is coming constantly means that also the humans will have to change. You either lay them off if you can't retrain them, I would say, you know, or you would lay them off because you have no other choice to be profitable, you do that. So there's no judgment call there, but those are rational decisions that you have to take. But, it, but it's a valid one. I mean, if you look at the, if you go 10 years in time and you look at the top 10 corporations of the world, and then you could check now which companies are now still there, right? This is also a way of looking at it. And then you could see the trends, what happened. Then you could, you, you could say, okay, this happened 
in the market. That's why these companies, you know, made that shift. I mean, 10 years ago, there wouldn't be Amazon, uh, Apple, etc. They wouldn't be that high. There will be more oil companies probably in the top uh, three list, billion dollar companies. And now these technology companies are, you know, pushing those companies away because data is like what they say, you know, the new oil. Yeah. So it, it really depends. I mean, your question is a good question, but it's not something that I would be able to, you know, address easily. But I, the way I see it, it's like you have, you know, you have the innovative companies and they, and you have the non, you know, non-innovative companies. Yeah. The, the top companies in the chart in the past 20 years have all shifted from, I think the only one still non-tech is Saudi Aramco, but that's just because there's use huge piles of oil in that area, but the, the rest of them are like uh, majority tech companies. What happens with the corporations, actually what we say, uh, this is the Silicon Valley thing that we say that the big companies, they get fat and lazy. Actually, this is what Sean maybe is, you know, referring yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they get complacent, yeah. fat and lazy, right? Yeah. Because uh, they, they have so much money and they feel, this happened also to Nokia, by the way. You it know, also they, comes in quite easily. I think that's also no problem because when you have the legacy, when you have the brand already that you're a top level brand, then it the the, the clients come in quite easily. They don't yes. they don't judge whether or not the products and the services that you're providing and the deals are valid or not. It's just yes. like, oh, we've done this before, so this is quality. We're paying for it, and that's it. Exactly. And 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 that just all of a sudden there's this big shift. A big change comes, and then they're not prepared for it. Exactly. Uh, well, part of them, of course. Well, this this is the, the the whole the whole thing about the technology companies is that they are disrupting the market, right? So they're taking over the market. I mean, you guys were talking about the NFTs, right, and cryptos, etc. That's that's like a, that's also technology, but it's 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 like in a new dimension, even you know. So it's, it's super abstract even for, for people, even that people that are digital savvy or already in that world, that is already like a specialization. Can you imagine people that are not in the technology industry, how they keep up? They you can't. Know? They can't. So that's why this is the opportunity for the startups. So I wouldn't go to a corporate any, necessarily anymore if I would be, uh, you know, graduating right now. What I, my story is a different story. I grew up in another time, you know, and back in our days, we had these management traineeships that you wanted to apply for. And if you would get a management traineeship, you were one of the few, you were a lucky one. It was a hard race, right? But and quickly now, on that, quickly on that, is it, is, what is, what is the problem? Because we had the discussion, sorry that I interrupted you, but we no, had this no, discussion no. also with companies like Biliton and Suralco that came to Suriname, no, where no. when like, 20, 30 years ago, when you came into those companies as like a rookie, you just graduated university and you came in, they would, the training level, that the training that you would get and they would provide was high end. You would get like all these international level, top of the line training sessions. Uh, either you would be flown out or you, you would find a way to actually get those top level trainings. And I'm trying to figure out, is that that? There's no more budget for it, which I would find weird. Is it because the people that supposed to train there, there's no training curriculum for the new tech uh, just yet? What's what's the reason that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you came into the big corporate organizations, especially also in Suriname, you would have all these international training programs, and now a really select group of companies still does that. Very good one. I don't know what's the reason. I, say, I think, you know, people uh, stopped investing, you know, in people. We, we go more for technology and, 
and profit. I think that's maybe one part of it. But there are still companies that do a lot of, you know, invest a lot in human capital building. Your, your, your point is valid. So for me, it was more interesting to work for a corporation because the first year, two, three years, they invest so much in training. At Anderson, I got a lot of training. I mean, I was flown completely to Chicago, right? I think what they spent on me was like maybe $50,000 on the training, not, not just for that training. And then when I moved to Oracle, I did the calculation. I mean, of course, if you would buy it yourself, probably you would get it cheaper, but everything was corporate rate. So I think Oracle invested maybe like uh, another fifty to $100,000 in me, just in one person, right? It's, it sounds ridiculous, but they did that. And the, but the model in the past was also different. Think about this. You, you mentioned Billy Ton and Sir Alco. The, the paradigm in the past was, the assumption was, you would graduate, you would work for a company and you would work there 30 years. That's why I got depressed because I was also thinking, do I have to do this, this 30 years? But it turns out that's not no longer the case. Nobody that I know works 30 years, 40 years in, uh, until they go with pension, you know? So that was a different time. It was also a different paradigm. So I guess those companies would also expect you to stay longer with them. That's why they would invest. I wouldn't invest, you wouldn't invest in someone neither, you know, if they leave within two months after the training, right? That you invest or pay for them. So I think the assumptions and the world has changed, of course. Yeah, to repackage that, you took the word right out of my mouth. The assumption is that, yeah, people don't, people are really like trying many things. It's not more about security and there is no the management. Yeah. There is no job security. This is the illusion that we all adored, but it's, it's, it is no, there is no safety. Yeah. And, and even management and change management changed uh, the, that perspective on yeah. how people interact with that. So yeah. I, I think that makes a valid sense. And to quickly go through the, the comments from what we've just discussed, two highlights from Greg, if you can't keep adding value, you lose the game. And he adds to that when companies are too big to fail, companies should fail as they become lazy and shouldn't be saved from failure by the government. And this is something we see a lot, like a lot of the airlines, especially around the world have been bailed out by the governments and just how the past 10, 15 years has been with this in ever increasing bull market cycle with the economy going, these companies don't keep reserves for emergency situations. So like when, when something like this happens with a full lockdown, full total travel stop, they don't have money to, you know, survive a year. And you can reflect this to personal finance, but this is on a mega, mega ultra yes, scale. Yes. It's um, a big problem you're, you're addressing. Absolutely. To comment on, on the comment that was mentioned. Yeah. If you're, if you're, it's Silicon Valley also has the mantra. So fail and fail fast. So, but this is for the startup cultures, right? Because the other companies are too big to fail. So you have two uh, parts of the spectrum, so to speak. So when you are a startup, it's good. If, if your idea is not good, your business is not good, it's better that you fail as soon as possible. That, that, this is how, and then you go to the next venture, the serial entrepreneurship. That's, you know, in America, it works like that. But so it's are, funny that you, it, it puts serial entrepreneurship in a totally different light. Yeah. Because it, like, like on, on social media, yeah, on social media, serial entrepreneurship is like, I've built all these amazing companies, but the, the way you're saying it's like serial entrepreneurship is you move on from the first to the next and you yeah. just keep on iterating. Yeah. So it's more that a company is an iteration than that we're talking about many successful companies. And I think that's a very diff diff difficult perspective to understand if you're not aware with the terms. 
So I, I think that this is a culture. This is a this is. I mean, it's, we only have one hour, right? It's like Silicon Valley is like a special place, right? A lot of innovation that we use now, also during this call, comes from that area, right? So and it has a history. There's a reason why that is that is there, and it's not easy to replicate the culture of Silicon Valley because everybody is want to replicate the Silicon Valley in their own country and so on. It's it's not just it's not like that. It doesn't work like that. But there are elements that you could adopt, of course. But over there, you have this community of venture capital. So, the so it's it's an ecosystem, right? An ecosystem. It's not just the entrepreneurs that are are having a great idea and they want to go to market. There is also uh, mentoring systems, right? A university is also close by, right? Stanford University is there. Also Caltech and other you know universities are there. So there is a lot of and there is also capital available. So there are a couple of elements that you need to have in the equation for for something for an environment, innovative environment to work. And the venture capitals they also want to know if they put their money. Of course, they want the company to be successful, but they are used to the fact that not all their investments are gonna make it. They're used to the idea, right? So it's it's for for us in Suriname, it's very hard to understand this. I can imagine because you want to maybe save every dollar, but they it's are. It's like gambling. <laughs> It is a gamble in a way. It's a gamble, but they are—they are just going. Silicon Valley is going for the unicorns. So you have to become a billion-dollar company. Otherwise, actually, you're not interesting. You're a loser. I find that too extreme, to be honest. Right? I'm not like that. I'm just saying, you know, they can be a little bit like that. But, and I, and I don't think Silicon Valley has all the all the answers for us because we we already live in a world with the big corporation, as you mentioned already before, like the banks, the airlines, the cruise ships. You know all these oil refinery plants, etc. Those 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 are big capex, you know, capital uh, intensive, you know, industries. And if there is a change in the market, they are like the Titanic that cannot make the turn that easy. So they are too big to fail, as as we call it. If they fail, the reason why we call it like that is if they fail, they will dr drag everybody in 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 their in their in their in their falling right. And that's why the government is putting money into it. This could be one of the reasons, by the way, for because otherwise the whole economy could collapse. This was the case with the banks. With the so, airlines, with the airlines, it's a different thing. I know, for instance, in Suriname now there is because I follow the news obviously, and I know that people are asked now if they want to leave voluntarily. So that is like you know a downsizing, right? The company is going through a transition, a change, and they are looking to downsize the operation. That is a logical reaction, right? But it not, it's not necessarily going to help the company because we are in a global pandemic. So it's not a local problem. SLM is just one of those airlines that have a lot of problems. Of course, SLM has their specifics, right? And their own history, et cetera, et cetera. But it's being added on top of each other. It's being added on top yeah. of it, right? And sure. it, it is easy to say that, you know, if a company doesn't make money, you should let it go. I agree, in principle, but there could be reasons why you won't do that because you still have to have airlines in your countries to leave the country. Like for instance, I live on an island. I could say, yeah, if these companies don't make profit, they should go bankrupt. But then we never can leave the island. So you know, it's it's not just it's it's a complicated. There are two questions on this. So one from YouTube: How does the title of chief philosophy officer fit in this story? And I guess, what is a chief philosophy officer? How does this 
fit in your daily life? Yes. No, very good question. Thank you for that. So for that, to answer that, I have to also go a little bit back in time. So when I was working for these companies like Oracle, later I worked for Forrester Research, and my last corporate job was at Gartner, I was dealing with CIOs so, or business leaders. So let's say the C-suite, right? The executive uh, boardroom. And what, one thing that I noticed is that, you know, everybody is looking at the business from their own angle, from their own perspective which is why they are hired, right? I mean, they are like the finance person is focusing on the finance, the marketing on the market, the CMO on the marketing, and the, 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 the CIO on the information, the, the, the technology, and the CEO is kind of responsible for everything. And so you could also have the chief operating officer and so on. But one thing that I notice is that, and this is where the chief philosophy officer comes into play, the way I see it, it's somebody that has, you know, that is able to look at an issue as a challenge, as a problem, at the problem, at a challenge, a business challenge, from multiple angles. So like a multidisciplinary approach, kind of. And to be honest, uh, a lot of business decisions are biased decisions, right? And, and I think that's when I started to think about, you know, the role of a chief philosophy officer is to not having the answers necessarily, but asking the right question in the boardroom with the other C-level people um, to kind of make them, you know, understand bigger picture of why they are doing what they are doing. So not just the how question, how we have to address a specific market, but why, because philosophy is about the why, right? The, the, the why question. And why I call it chief philosophy officer and not just corporate philosopher is because, you know, I wanted to f- let it fall in the realm of the chief, you know, in, 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 because everybody's like a chief puncher puncher, right? The chief CXO, we would call it. So, <laughs> so that's, that's how I came up with it. I think the, 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 the question the maybe is... Trade also, market, because uh, was, there, was there not something else like that? Because you also got the name chief philosopher, uh, philosopher.com. So, oh yeah. I, yeah. I'm surprised well, that well, nobody well, else did that. So. Yeah. So, well, somebody has to be the first, right? So most yeah. probably, I'm like Carlsberg, you know, Carlsberg, the bear brand. They said probably the best bear in the world probably is the right word in this, in this sentence, right? Because they're not sure and it's marketing. But in my case, probably, I, you know, I'm the first chief philosophy officer or somebody that started to call himself or herself like that. And the reason why I know that is because when I came up with that term, I think it was in 2005, I Googled it. There was no hits on it and the dot-com was available. So, you know, that's why I decided I'm going to trademark that and, and use it as a differentiator also for myself going to the market. So, because it's also, it's a, it's a conversation starter. Right. If I if I have a presentation somewhere and I give my or I meet somebody and I give my business card and they see chief philosophy officer, of course they they also want to know what that is. So Diego, I have to ask you this. I have to ask you this. Did you trademark Creative Explorer? No. Oh, you're Uh, asking Diego. Sorry. Yeah, it's 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 a few people. I think I think I know three people in Suriname who have used Creative Explorer. As, as their title. And it's, it's kind of similar, something similar, but we never, and that's, I think, also the patenting and, uh, and uh, copywriting. I think that's something you have to come up with because, of yeah. course, Intellectual there have been other... Look, yeah. NFT, yeah. NFT is the same thing. It's all about non-tangibles, right? So it's funny, but the value is there. And the same thing, so philosophy is also like that. I mean, also when I was working at Oracle, uh, when I go back, I remember I had to sell like databases. And I never heard about a database before, right? So I, I, 
So my mentor was explaining me, this is something like a software thing. You put something in it. And I was thinking, okay, but when does it get full? It would never get full. They said, no, you can keep putting stuff in it. And I was like, and remember, eh, I didn't study business or anything. So I studied uh, philosophy and physics. So I'm there in that environment. And I think, okay, so you put something in the, in the box, in the database, and it never gets full. It keeps expanding. I was thinking, all right, it's like the expanding universe, right? As we would say in, in Dutch, right? So, it's, 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 so this, is like, this was my first kind of thinking like, okay, how can I use like physics or philosophy into the business world for a better understanding? First for myself and later to translate the complex information and try to present it you know, for a bigger audience that they can also kind of grasp the, the bigger picture ideas. I so, really believe that that's where magic happens when you get someone from a totally opposite field, quote unquote, opposite field and throw them in that and how they interpret that. Like you said, with the database thing, it's, it's really interesting to see how that developed and shaped you in the way you're thinking. and came up with the chief philosophy officer idea in this corporate world where nobody was asking these questions, looking at it at these perspectives. And I, I can see now how that shaped you into going into that direction. Yeah, I mean, some of my colleagues thought I was going too far with it, right? But I just wanted to understand what I was doing. I couldn't sell it, the data, I couldn't sell the Oracle products if I wouldn't understand it. Right. Uh, and mind you, I was, back then I was one of the most successful sales, I have to say, not to brag, but it's because I took the time to understand also what I was doing. Right. I didn't just wanted to sell a product just like that. I really want to understand something that is, yeah, I can't help it. You know, if I'm interested in something, I want to know all the ins and outs of it. No, people underestimate it. Let, let, let me let me give this to from a marketing perspective. People underestimate this when it comes to outsourcing. Like, for instance, when you outsource part of your company to another company and the other company that you outsource it to is really good at their craft, but they don't have a grasp of what your company is about and why the products are important, yeah. you, you can't proper, properly outsource it yeah. because they don't understand the culture. They don't understand the whole philosophy behind yeah. the company. So I they know. might be great at marketing your company, but they don't understand your why of your company and then it fails. Yeah. And this is something we really struggle with because... People outsource to us and we really have to find a project manager that fits that company to make sure that if we try to communicate as part of that company, that we have somebody in our company that actually understands the, the vision and the philosophy behind our clients and what they want to achieve. Yeah. And, I, and, 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 and I'm talking about outsourcing that's even a step further, but it's a very good point. This, this as well. one of the reasons why outsourcing didn't work in many cases because of the cultural gaps. And also the, 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 the I don't know the English word, but the betrokkenheid, maybe you guys can translate for me. You have to be involved deeply into, into what you are doing, right? And you have to have passion for what you're doing also, right? We would say, but yeah, I guess some people just, you know, other people just were thinking about, you know, I can sell something and I can make money with it. But I'm just saying this was my, this, this was how I was looking at it. But it's a, it's a great point. I mean, you can't, uh, by, by the way, you also have B2B, so business to business versus B2C, which is also different, right? In a B2B, you want to invest a little bit more time, both into your own product, but obviously more time in understanding your customer, your business customer. And, and so you need to invest in the relationship. It's not a transactional sale. 
You know, it's not just in one go you have you have a, a deal there, right? So there are certain steps that you have to go through before you can come up with the, with the signature of the client. You know, with the buying of the client. I, I see this again. That it boils down to relationship and philosophy, understanding people, but also organization to an extent is core to this part. You don't need the greatest, the best technically to get results, to get buy-in. You just need that involvement, that understanding. Yeah. And you, yeah, you have to be able to ask the right questions. This is where philosophy comes in, actually. But it's not that only philosophers do this, right? I mean... Psychologists. Psychologists. <laughs> actually, it's about curiosity. The, the, the right word for that is curiosity. You know, you have to be curious about stuff. You have to be curious about your customer. You have to be curious about their problem, really interested in it and really curious to find a solution for them. And if your company doesn't offer a solution for that, okay, then you have no added value for that customer, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to draw that conclusion also. It's not that you can, it's not that you can de deliver everything. There's no cookie cutter solution. There's no, no cookie cutter solution. No. In software, you could promise a customer everything because if you would build it from scratch, in theory, in principle, you could make it completely as a customer wants it. But it's not a sustainable business model because yeah, not practical. No. And speaking of curiosity, right before the call, I, I thought I'd throw this out there. You asked on naming. We, we talked about yes. naming, and we talked about chief philosophy officer, trademarking that. Sean Luke just asked me creative explorer, but I did take convos. The moment I saw it was available, I did take that immediately, and you know, claim that I, I I took it like after the first second episode of the podcast, like, okay, this can go somewhere. And it just flowed in the mouth. And to your curiosity, Anil, on, you know, the, the naming convention, it's basically a made-up word, but okay. a made-up word with the fundamentals of conversation, casual conversation, but bringing in the controversy, the confidence, and challenging, like, the foes in the big, bigger systems. Ah, interesting. That I is the... Yeah, foundational wording informing convos, basically. I was thinking about Kung Fu. Wow, that's layers, man. Yeah, that's layers. That's, that's actually deep. layers. <laughs> I was thinking more on the lines like, you know, like social Kung Fu, like, like Kung Fu Panda. But now, <laughs> now, now, now I, I get where you are. Wow. Okay. Wow. Deep. Yeah, we will probably cover this in, in, in another episode. But if, if we're talking about the logo as well, I, I'd layer that multiple with multiple levels as well, but we'll, we'll go into that another no, day. No, but commenting on that, I can, I can see that you have put a lot of thought in it. It's a thoughtful process you went through. So you can see that in the details, how you, you know, yeah. the podcast, so the imaging. Quickly for everyone who's listening, if you've seen the logo or the, the name, what does it say to you? We were curious on that as well. Put it in a comment. What does Convo say or what? what do you, how do you interpret it? And I mean, Anil already shared his take. So I'm, I'm curious to you also, Sean, because I never asked you this just before we go to the I, uh, I just put it in for you. I, I, I put in the, the logo on the, on the top right for you that, that people can look at the logo a little bit. I'm even letting it blink like it's actually a feature, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. so any thoughts on that? Put it in chat. We'll, we'll check it out. We're really curious on that. But yeah, that was just a short sidetrack on... The, the to to get us more on the fun side because we went really a, a, a bit deeper. <laughs> but I want to go deeper. I, I yeah, do have definitely. a follow-up question on, yeah, let's go on the chief philosopher. Okay. Okay. So so 
chief chief philosopher officer. Okay, so here's here's my un uneducated just learning about these this title take on this. So you have generations of 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 of, of a company, for instance, of an organization. I feel like when people found a company, when you have the startup, the aspect of the why comes up a lot. It's when you start thinking about why are we actually starting a business? Why are we naming this business a certain way? Why do we want to go into a certain niche or a specific field? So I feel like at that point, so I'm really curious. Let, let me kind of introduce the question already. I'm really curious how the role of the chief philosophing officer kind of philosophy officer changes over the trajectory of where a company is compared to a startup where basically everybody thinks about why a why the why a lot towards a company that has matured and has been around for 10 years to a company that has gone on for generations so do you already from your experience see a difference in the need for a, a chief philosophy officer when they're a startup versus when they're a, a, a renowned business versus when they've already been there for generations? I think that's a great question because it, it will depend and the value add will also depend. But I think a chief philosophy officer operates best in crisis. Maybe that's, you know, so what is a crisis? A crisis is uh, when you don't know what you want to do or you're not certain what you need to do, right? So you go back to the question board, right? Uh, why am I doing this? Do we really want to do this? What is the strategy? All those things, right? So I, I think, so both when you are in a startup company, you have a lot of questions, but maybe then a chief philosophy officer wouldn't add too much uh, in that space. And it also depends a little bit. I have to be honest, when you Google on chief philosophy officer, like I said in the past, you wouldn't find any hits. Now you will find many. So the, the, the title is becoming like popular, right? So, I mean, I can trademark it, but I don't mind if other people use it as long as you have the credentials. I don't want to be the only one. But what, what I wanted to say is like, what you would find if you would Google, you would see mostly that people are talking about like ethics. So that the philosopher comes at, you know, at a table when there's these questions about, you know, ethics. Like for instance, we have this AI, artificial intelligence coming up. What kind of ethical questions do we need to address, you know, moving forward? I find that a limited way of looking at it because, like I said before, uh, the way I see, you know, a chief philosophy officer operating is somebody that is also going for the bigger picture, right? So you have to build a vision of where you want to go. For instance, if I can take the topic of smart cities, for instance, that's like, you know, it's, it's something that we are talking about for 10 years, like the big corporations came with that with that concept and obviously the world has changed now. So, you know, things that were envisioned as a smart city are not necessarily the, 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 the things that we're gonna implement moving forward. But, but, but with the smart city also, before you go to a smart city, what is a smart city, right? So those, those would be, that would be a question that I would have for, for people that are in that, in that, in that, in that space. So, Again, it's, it's about uh, the bigger picture, asking the, the why question, but also helping to craft the vision, right? Because you have to be able to see where you are going in the future, right? So, the, so I, I don't wanna say you need to know the trends, all the trends, but you have to know where you're heading, right? Because this is the purpose, the direction, your strategy, your, you know, the, the, the course of your company that you're heading into. So, 
Yeah, mm. I, I, I see the chief philosophy officer as somebody that is really, you know, helping the organization, the, the, or if it's a government body or a country, you know, to to see the things from a vision point of view, the bigger picture, and not necessarily the details. I mean, the devil is in the details. I know that, and of course, a philosopher also can go into the details. But I think in a corporate world, and, and that's why I call a chief philosophy officer, and not just a philosopher in a company is somebody that will be a strategic person that will help craft the vision with, you know, of the organization moving forward. And also helping you with you know, the softer things like the, the purpose, the right way mm. to communicate it, but not just the ethics, because this is, I find it, you know, that is like putting the philosopher in the box of the ethics. I think that that is, maybe some people are great in that, but I think that is a limited scope. No, I, definitely, think, I think, I think, uh, I think uh, with uh, artificial yeah. intelligence, with smart cities, but not just with technology, like digital technology, but also in the biological medical sphere, right? There's so many innovations going on. We can even, you know, you have CRISPR. I don't know if you have heard of that. That is like yeah. uh, programming, reprogramming a human body via the DNA. So, so, so uh, since you brought up smart cities and we talked about addicts, bigger picture, especially in the corporate world, I want to, I guess, challenge this from a philosophy perspective on, on smart cities, as in, if we're talking about ethics, cities are getting smarter, or let me say the way I see smart cities is, you know, everything is interconnected, uh, a lot of things are automated, like you see in the movies, you order something, it gets delivered by drone nowadays, so that, that, that's the pictures that be being painted in media a lot now. But if, if you look at it from an ethics perspective, how would that differ for like, from like a authoritarian perspective, like the, you know, the one person or one organization that controls all, it could be a corporation. We talked about corporation taking over the role of government because governments don't run like a business, but say this corporation builds a smart city. I think Toyota started one in Japan somewhere. Yeah, I saw it today, um, yes, on LinkedIn, that they are building a new smart city. Yeah, so from an ethics perspective, how does that clash with, I guess, human freedom, human rights, philosophy, uh, in that ability to live in such a city? And yeah. how much does that detract from... Yes. So that's a very good question. I mean, there, there is a danger to uh, not just the smart city, but to the whole, you know, digitalization, right? Also with social media, we already, you know, know that there, there is there's this issue of fake news. There is this issue of even fake videos where you could, you know, have the president of whatever country showing up himself or herself on TV. And, you know, it's all a computer, right? It's, it's, uh, so there are so many dangers. So it's, we don't even have to go to a smart city to experience the dangers already. George Orwell, when he wrote his book, he wrote many books about this dystopian society. He wrote also Animal Farm. I don't know if you know that book. Everybody's talking about 1984, but actually Animal Farm is far more interesting because it's, uh, <laughs> it's talking about how humans are actually, you know, in, a, in an animal story. I think, you know, the Germans already had the Stasis, you know, I mean, people that were listening in already to all the conversations. We can go in history to see that it had already happened. So it's not a, a fear that we have to have for the future only, right? It is a risk, but, and we have Snowden, right? So we had Snowden that came up with, you know, the WikiLeaks. Oh no, that, uh, that was before, but you know, all the information is out there that everybody, you know, all your data is out there. You don't have privacy, they can control you, et cetera, et cetera. 
it is all a scenario, but I think the benefits, if you do it right, you have to, you have to take these things into consideration. I'm not saying they're not important, but I guess once you start consciously crafting, you know, your smart city plan or your smart nation plan, you, you know, you will come up with the pros and the cons and you will not implement everything. So I think you should look at the things that are really smart, you know, not, not, not just from a technology point of view, because the paradigm is technology, but ultimately the, this is also what I say, smart city starts with smart citizens. And we build a smart city, not for the buildings, we build it for the citizens, right? So my philosophy of a smart city is not a technocratic, you know, top-down vision of how people have it in their mind, right? There is high rise, skyscrapers and et cetera, et cetera, for a smart city. The way I see it, we already live in a smart city. Think about it. I mean, 50% or 80% of Surinamese people are using Android. Is that correct? I'd so, say it's a really you know, high percentage. A bit, a bit yeah. more, yeah. Okay, so, so, so when you start thinking, let's, let's go deeper, right? So who's the owner of Android? That's Google, right? So Google basically already can plot draw a map of Suriname, so to speak, you know, virtually. So you have Suriname and they can see all the phones, you know, yeah, the GPS, etc. Google Maps is very creepy, ac accurate, like really creepy, accurate, how, how accurate Google Maps is right yeah, now. So, so Suriname doesn't have a smart city because the Surinamese people are thinking we still have to have the Singapore lifestyle before we get there. But I'm like, no, 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 that's the wrong assumption. Google already has a smart city vision of, you know, of every country because they, they don't need to have the buildings. They want the data and, and, and what people are doing with their phones, that's already, you know, in the servers, in the cloud. So being analyzed or not. So you, we already live in a smart city. It's just that the government doesn't control it. But Google already knows more than you. And they also know more than the president about what's going on in the conversation of the people. Right. And whatever documents are in their emails or whatever. So it is an idea which is wrong to think that because I have this conversation, not just with people in Suriname, that they say, yeah, but we are not that far. You know, we, we still have to go through this level of investment before we can become a smart city. I say, no, that's a wrong assumption. My assumption is different. Like I said already, uh, one of the reasons that I gave is that the, the corporations already have actually information about us that could be interpret, interpreted as the, the, the first phase of a smart city. But what I also see as another assumption is that the citizens already have the smartphone and we forget that. So if you look at the requirements, the, you know, the round four, the requirements that you would need, all those requirements that you would need to have a smart city, there is an element that the government should do, that the corporation should do. But ultimately, we already have the smartphone. I, the way I see it, it's actually 50% of the equation. But, the, but where we need to uh, bridge the gap is also on the digital literacy side. Because if yeah. you have a smartphone, that doesn't mean that you are a smart user. Let's jump you know? into that. Yeah. Because that, that question was on the top of my lips. So looking at the future, looking at solutions, what are the main skills that, and not just young professionals, because one of the things that I was thinking about is, also, we have, and that's everywhere in the world, and there's a story, when I was studying sociology, there was a story of companies in Japan, like factories in Japan, mm -hmm. that people who are actually retired 
in the middle of the night because they couldn't sleep. There are a lot of people that have that issue and they would go to the factory and they would clock in and they would start working. And I was baffled by it. I was like, okay, so what if we have a lot of Surinamese people, like elderly people, retired people, they have a lot of traditional Surinamese knowledge. They know about our culture, which is being lost. They know about natural medicine. They know about the history of our country. What if we made those people digitally literate and allow them as well to work in the night when they can't sleep and actually update the Wikipedia pages, uh, update websites, because that's something that we're really lacking. But that's just a specific example. So what I would like to know is what, what would be skills that if you want to accelerate this process to make like Paramaribo, but like other cities in, in Tsunamo smart as well, what are the skills that you look at that you say, these are the skills that we should really are the basics that we should master to 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 improve, to make that improvement? Yes. To repackage that Very. is instead of smart cities, how do you get smart citizens? Yes, exactly. So maybe we should talk about smart citizens. I agree with you because smart cities might, you know, may yeah. make people think like, no, that is too, too far fetched in the future. So how do you how do we all become smarter, smart citizens? So first of all, we have to understand that what we have in our hands is a very powerful tool, right? We paid a lot of money for it, some people more than others, but it's a very expensive tool. And mind you, they send people to the moon if it, you know, with a computer with less capabilities than your smartphone. Actually, your smartphone has more capabilities than the IBM mainframes back in the days. So it's very powerful. And we the only the, the most features that we use are just WhatsApping and Facebook and social media. So that that is that's good, but I think we could do much more. I think that's the first awareness, right? And to your point, Sean Luke, I think it's a great point. When I talk about digital literacy, I'm not talking about we have to start because everybody said we have to start with education. Yes, that's correct. But not not just in the in the schools. When I talk about digital literacy, it's for everyone. Because this is the new dimension we are entering, the digital dimension. If we go philosophical, that's where we're entering, right? We live in this physical world, but we have created, as a human being, we have created ourselves collectively a new dimension. And like it or not, 50% or more of your time, you're spending, you're living in that space, whatever it is, right? In that universe, digital universe. So I would say you have to, you have to, you know, you have to segment the market. You have to, the age groups, I think, because everybody's learning different. So I think you should bring up some programs for different segments of the market, but also for different fields, for instance, because in healthcare, you want to go a little bit deeper on certain aspects of, uh, of digital literacy, like e-health, et cetera, right? So you, what you would have to have is like what we had in the 50s and the 60s, this, 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 I don't know the English word, but analphabetisering programma, combating analphabetism, right? The governments were putting a lot of money into that. We should do the same, but now with digital literacy. So basically, we have to understand what artificial intelligence is. We have to understand what the, the C from the cloud, the D from data, you know, like the new alphabet. And of course, I can say it easily like this, but you have to have it in a structured way. You have to have a, a structured program a nationwide campaign, a nationwide program to roll this out because this is how we're going to educate ourselves, adopting a new mindset, a smart mindset, you know, for, for to so enter the new... I'm a little bit 
not not worried about this, but I think I'm I'm more of an organic kind of growth for this than a structured growth, because why where I'm really worried is, and I think it it might connect somewhat to the training processes we were discussing for for the big corporations. You have to find the right lecturers, the right people to teach, but also figure out what are the right skills. Because what I see a lot is I meet in my field a lot of 50, 60-year-olds who really, they fully grasp the technological change, but they can't grasp the, tech, the practical side of it. So what they fully give, understand. Give me, an, give me an example. Because I, my, mom, my mom, I gave her a tablet a few yeah. years ago. She couldn't yeah. work with the laptop of my dad. Because he was using no, but I'm really talking. But, I'm but, talking from an educational really perspective. Easy. Yeah, yeah. But what I want yeah. to say, so, yeah. so it's not that the older people in general have more difficulties with the technology. This is an assumption many people make. It depends yeah. on the user interface. So if the user interface is like a smartphone or a tablet, it's you. Can, you see that older people and young kids, they are you know working with it like it's natural. No, but it's more multi multidisciplinary. I think that's the biggest issue that I have with it. It's more multidisciplinary because, for instance, it it it, it in a, I mean, of course we grow. Of course everything develops. We've yeah. we've discussed. I think in a in a pre in a pre discussion we talked about over information. Yeah. So what is happening is there's so much over information that we we cannot sometimes not distinguish between what's relevant and what's not relevant. And the same issue is what you're going to have when you're going to create the educational structure to actually restructure the digital education, make people digital literate, is that we might end up focusing on the wrong skills for digital literacy because the people that actually have to create the educational package, they themselves consider themselves fully digital literate, but they aren't. And and the no, biggest you're right. you're, I, I see your point. Biggest, I see your, okay. The biggest issue that we have is that like we discussed with cryptocurrency, like even somebody who's head into cryptocurrency, who kind of understands the fundamentals of blockchain technology, can sometimes they sometimes I can't understand a lot of the things developers are doing on different blockchains. I have like no technical knowledge of how they do it. So for me to tell people how and what they should learn is already difficult. But then you have other people who from their perspective are already very knowledgeable about it. And and the best example that I can give is when, when we start talking about things like OneCoin, for instance, like the amount of people who were into OneCoin in Suriname that were trying to convince me how the system worked and how blockchain works from their experience, from a multi-level marketing pyramid scheme, it's it, it's baffling because they couldn't understand the difference between the two. And that's where I worried about the over-information. And that's why I'm also looking more at organic, but also at a more decentralized approach. Yeah, I and agree I think, with you. I, now I see where you're yeah. coming from. Now I see where you're coming. When I when I talk about digital literacy for the masses, so without classes, I meant indeed like a you know nationwide for the basic literacy, right? And the reason why I bring it up, actually, what it what it means in my case, what I'm trying to say is that it's it's just that we have to be aware that you can that there is a new world, right? And there are new opportunities because people are not fully aware that these these things are available to them. But I agree with you. And it's, it, 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 it's, it's not something that you can push because what is digital literate to know, uh, what is relevant for now 
may be obsolete tomorrow. I agree with you, but this is for all type of education. This is a universal truth. So what I would say, and I agree with you, you won't be able to get everybody on board uh, and you will have different flavors, right? It's not, it, it could be organic. It doesn't have to be that the government is organizing. If we wait for the government, it's not, probably not gonna happen. They have other issues, right? So I think you're right. It could go organically or non-distributed, as you say. Many people could take this initiative. I already started a few uh, on my own also when, when it comes to this, right? So I agree with you. And also what will play a role is that we have these different generations. So not everybody is gonna adopt certain things at the same speed. I agree with you. But I'm talking about an ideal world also where I hope that people are gonna spend more make themselves more knowledgeable about the digital dimension, you know, this digital universe, because it will allow you to work location independent and to be able to connect with people outside your country. And then you can do, uh, you can learn from them, you can teach them, or you can learn from them, like I said already, or you could do business with them, e-commerce, etc. So I think people in the classical environment are, are, are more bound to their, you know, to their geographical boundaries, etc. But I think the promise of the internet and mobile and digital is that you can become a little bit more independent. So because it's a liberating technology also, it's, it's, it's you know, actually, that's why I agree with you also. If you have internet, you don't need, you, you don't need anyone to tell you what you should do because you could go online and create kind of your own preference world, like a personalized world, right? So I agree with you, but that's when you are ahead of the curve, then you, yeah. then you will be able to use the, the liberal world as a, as a play garden for you, right? Yeah. And you don't so want that's, that's, mommy telling you something or government telling you, or that, that's the ideal world for me also, yeah. that I can create. So, but then, then I come with the difficult, then, then I'm coming with the difficult, devil's advocate kind of approach and now it's getting really philosophical, but then you end up with smart ecosystems instead of smart cities. Yes, you will get because ecosystems. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're already seeing it. I mean, and, and, and I'm not gonna promote certain blockchains, but, but we're already seeing that at a certain point, you're gonna let go of your location. Yeah. And, and I think, and, and of course you have a lot more experience with that, but I, I think that still scares people a lot because your location is your only, when it comes from a social science perspective, your location is kind of your strongest identity. Yeah, that is in the old uh, even, even with us, Sorry, even with us. I have thought, I have thought as our, you have Farmaratrata behind your name. So, and, and, and I think the scariest thing for me, if I, if I just jump in it, is like, I lose part of my identity because I, I'm letting go of the, the physical location. So I think that's still something that, for me, for taking that next step is still something I struggle with. I agree with you. I mean, but it's, you know, where you're from, where you were born, your family is part of your identity. But identity is also a big question right now, globally, right? People are having this question, what, what is it to be human when we have these advanced computers, advanced AI that surpass human intelligence? Like Ray Kurzweil, I don't know if you heard of him, but he, he works for Google now but he is an inventor, etc. So he already wrote books like Spiritual Machines, etc., etc. So there is a point where, where, where there is a belief system, right? I, I'm not saying that this is my belief system, but there's a belief system that there is, that we have created something that will surpass our, our human intelligence. And then that will impact also what it means to be a human, right? 
So when you talk about identity, you, you, you also have an issue there, right? Because if you work more with a computer or you are more online, what is your identity? I mean, for me, uh, for me, it's, it's a good question because, but if I go back also to one of the things that we discussed about the corporate world, when I left the corporate world, like for instance, the last corporate job I had was at Gartner. And that's like a gorilla in the industry. So when I left that company for six months, I already also felt a little bit like, who am I? You know, because I was attached to the company that I was working. So it was become, became also part of my identity. But if you go really philosophical, the question is, who are you? What is your identity, right? Is it where you live or is it, it, it is, you know, I mean, probably we don't have time to go into that, but I understand where you're coming from, but I think we should flex our minds a little bit more, be a little bit more open-minded and open ourselves to the idea that you can be physical in Suriname, but online or with your mind, you can be anywhere. And that doesn't have to conflict with your identity. You can, you know, so. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity, absolutely. It is, this, is, this is actually the main message. I'm not saying you should listen to me because you know, I know better or whatever. I'm just saying this is an opportunity for people. Crypto is an opportunity for some people, not for everybody, but for sure the internet, the digital space is an opportunity for everyone because you have a smartphone. So the barriers to set up your own company, to enter the internet are much lower than let's say 10 years ago when you wanted to start a company. Definitely agree on that part with the internet opening things up and yet there are still many challenges with new opportunities brings new challenges. And I think this brings us to the final I never said yeah. it was going to be easy. The challenges are required actually to grow, to shape you just like how you through your journey it has shaped you through where you now are and you even use use the, the the phrase working apart together from the island and kind of borderless collaboration across the board so to bring this into a final question so that individuals you talked about smart citizens individuals who obviously not everybody is there yet but who are scratching the surface of you know the internet of exploring this world, what would you say from your approach, from your experience working remotely, working in a borderless world, be the first or the thing they should do to, you know, like mining in a mine, picking the eggs to, to, to break through, how, how could they break through that surface level tension? I'm not sure if I understood your question fully. So, yeah, so how can people who are now exploring this borderless world, people, especially people listening to this podcast, this is something fairly new. So we assume uh, we're making assumptions about you guys right now. So please don't feel offended. <laughs> we assume these are people that, you know, know their way around the internet, but how can they take it a step further to, you know, capitalize on this, to make connections on this? Yeah. Okay, so to talk about the Working Apart Together tribe as an organizational philosophy, because that's how it started. So actually this was in 2005, I was uh, brainstorming with an ex-colleague of mine from Oracle, and we were thinking about like in the future, everybody, this is what I was thinking, would have internet, right? On their mobile also. So they wouldn't need to go to an office anymore. I mean, what we are doing right now, right? 2021, but I'm talking about 2005. 
So we were thinking like, okay, we don't need to go to the office. And also there was also one thing, people that have, have experience, they have a strong opinion. They don't want to comply to the world of corporate anymore. What you, to your point, actually, Jean-Luc, that after a while you want to you wanna break free because it's great to be there, but you can only do what they say and you can only sell what they sell, right? I mean, that's, that's the restriction. So the creativity is less available there. And so when we, when we started to think about this new world in 2005, I was thinking the people that are working in the corporate world, so the, the, the business professionals, they will be fed up of listening to orders of management. So they will, they will find themselves to be an expert themselves on a specific domain. So they could go to market. But once they would go to market, they would realize, hmm, I may be good in marketing, but all the other aspects like I used to have when I was working still in a corporate, I would have a team, you know, and a manager. So the team would be having this many disciplines in one team. So this you don't have in one person, obviously. I mean, there's so much you can do. You can do a lot, but there's so much you can do. So you would still have to find other people, like other colleagues that you would bring together and then work on the project, right? So we started to brainstorm and that's how the name Working Apart Together came. It was like, what is a business equivalent of a led relationship? So a living apart together, right? People know this, right? So I was thinking, okay, that is like a what relationship, like a working apart together. But then you don't have the, you don't have the what doesn't sound. So I put an other T. So it became like what, like James Watt, right? The, the unit for power. And so that's how we came up with the idea of working apart together tribes. So in corporations, you have teams and in smaller worlds, you have tribes, right? And you can create your own tribe. So this is your, this is the answer to you, uh, Diego. So let's say you are somebody in Suriname and you are, you know, looking for ways to work apart together, right? Or you or to work together. If you, if you are geographically bound, traditionally, you're going to look for friends or people that you network with locally and then start your company, right? So you are not working apart together, you're working together. Now you have the internet, you can network online uh, via LinkedIn and you know what, you have your own maybe social media where you make connections. And then you, you find like-minded people somewhere else on the planet, right? And then you realize that you two or you three, four, five, whatever, are also a tribe. And you could also in that world together build a value proposition and pitch it to a client and deliver it to the client. And then once it's done, you go your own way again. So you have much more flexibility much more freedom and you don't have the fixed cost that you would have in a traditional business model if you are let's say you are a company you have your workers or your employees and you know all the specialists and but there's no projects like now maybe and then you still have to pay them right so in the working apart together tribe model everybody is independent has their own company but they realize that on their own they are on their own and they cannot fix the job so they need to find the, the you know the complementary skills to make it like they would be in a big corporate, but they are not, they're more flexible, more agile, more internationally spread and more technology savvy. So they can deliver, you know, faster, more competitive than the traditional corporation. So I think it is an opportunity for people that think like, I cannot find anybody in my country or in my regional space, but I can find them online. This is an opportunity, I would say already that you could become part of a tribe that is international and not geographically so, bound. And I think 
that is a that is a way to explore. This is how I've been working also since I you know I came from the Netherlands to Curaçao. I could also have moved to Suriname, but I felt I don't need to be in Suriname. I can be on an island because this is why I want I wanted to test what it is to live on an island with a laptop just like that, like in the brochure, right? And it is possible. I can tell you, it's not easy, but it is possible. And I have networked with people all over the world. I have worked with uh, companies from all over the world, and we have done a project also in Suriname where we, when we had to come together, we all took a plane and we were together. But we don't always have to be together. We don't always have to be in the same place. And 2021, 2020, 2021, and 2022, we will see that the experience that I had and other people that already had this experience will become kind of the new practices you know, for most people. So we will have to experiment a little bit with it. You know, we will fail also there and some people will be successful, but I think this is one way of uh, moving forward. And it will give you, it will broaden your horizon because you mentioned your identity. Of course, I feel Surinamese, but I live in Curaçao. That didn't break me from feeling Surinamese, right? I mean, I love Curaçao as much as I love Suriname, but Suriname will always be special because I was born there, that is, that is something you will have. But if I would think like, no, no, I have to go straight away after graduation to Suriname and, you know, like a pure nationalist and so on and so on, I would have missed also many other opportunities for my personal life, but also opportunities to connect with other people that had skills and knowledge that I didn't have and that I could also bring that to Suriname because it was not available in Suriname. Yeah, in short, it's actually connecting, finding, building a tribe. And it's funny, Shandruk, that we talked about philosophy here and in previous episode, it all came down. A lot of the conversations ended with tribes or going to tribes in one sense or another. Yes. So it, it, it's, it's really my last keynotes, My last three years of keynotes on the social media conference in Suriname ended up with tribes. It's, well, I was it, on it, here, but... I was not there, but yeah, but if you, if you are in a tribe, you are better off. So, and look, you have to think about the tribes is, it is, it is closer to our, our, our human being, right? Because when you are in a corporation, you, they dehumanize you a little bit. That is true. You can be less, you, can, you have to leave a little bit of yourself at home when you enter the corporate world. And when you are in a tribe, actually, the reason why you are in a tribe is because you are valued for who you are because of you know, your specific skills. So you can be whoever you are, right? And that, because you're complimentary, people know your, your, your expertise and they value you for that. And that is a much better feeling, a rewarding feeling than when you would give your talents you know, to a more, let's say an environment where you, you don't have a tribe, but you have a team. I mean, there's nothing wrong with teams, but I think a tribe, I'm also a little bit like, you know, like the warriors, right? The, the tribe of the warrior. So, not, you know, it's like you're, you're, you're going after something. That's also the meaning of a tribe, right? Yeah. No, awesome. I think that is a great place to end the episode. But I guess final, final, final things. What can people expect from you? How can people connect with you? And Theo asks, cheers, Anil. When are we grabbing a parvo again? <laughs> That's a good one. As soon as we can fly again. So that's why we need airlines, you know, to keep the airlift and the lines open. Then I'm absolutely happy to have a beer. Or you should come over here. Then we have a Polar if you want. 
and yeah so final thoughts what can people expect from you and oh, yeah, yeah. How, how can they connect with you yeah you can you can find me on, uh, on via anil famaretret on facebook or anil saduram on linkedin so feel free to connect with me let's open the conversation i'm sure if you have questions i'm a very approachable person people that already know me so feel free to shoot me an email or or uh, connect with me i mean and then we take the conversation from there i mean There's 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 a lot of things that we didn't cover in the conversation, but like I said, you know, once you connect, you have specific questions for your organization, or just you want to talk, just uh, just shoot me uh, an invite. Happy to connect. Awesome. We'll put all those connecting information for Anil in the description in the show notes. Uh, also check out Chief Philosophy Philosophy Officer dot com. Yes. Really cool that you got that uh, trademark. Really awesome. Check that out to find out more yeah. about Anil. And with that being said, this episode will be released on Saturday on all the podcasting platforms, audio versions. If you guys see any glitches on the website in the next week or two, we're experimenting with a few things. So bear in mind and we appreciate any feedback if you see anything that's wrong. So shoot, shoot us a message as well on that. But with that being said, Chanluk, the last word, and then you can roll us out. Yeah, of course. I wanted to say it so many times, so I'm so happy that Joel put in the Hive plug. There are so many things that were discussed here which relate directly to the Hive ecosystem. I'm not going to plug it fully, but this Saturday we will have a Hive digital meetup. So if you're interested in learning decentralization and decentralized social media and decentralized ecosystems, definitely hit us up yes, uh, and we'll have a continuation on it. And guys, this was a fun, fun episode. Anil, thank you so much. Everybody in the comments and everybody that watched live or is listening to it, uh, to us, thank you so much for listening. This was Anil. This was Diego. This was Jean-Luc. This was Social Confos. See you next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Surinamese time. Bye-bye.